Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and I uh, we're going to talk about uh, climate change and macroeconomic consequences of climate change, and we'll bring in a few of our other colleagues to talk about that. But before we do that, uh, I want to bring in my two co-hosts, Marissa, Marissa DiNatale. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm good. How are you? Good. You're hailing from Southern California today? I am. Yep. Excellent. Made it back Excellent. from hurricane-addled Florida last week. I know. Did you know my home in Florida, the eye of that storm went right over the of my home? Really? Wow. And the only damage I had, bizarrely, was a screen. One screen got broken. That was it. Wow. R- really bizarre. Even the uh, the beach, uh, you know, it was impacted, but very modestly. The Most of the impact was kind of north, you know, towards Daytona Beach. Yeah. The, that beach got creamed, unfortunately. Uh, and you, where were you? You were in Naples, I think, I right? was in Southwest Florida. So Southwest. Last, last week when that hurricane was hitting the East Coast... My flight got canceled, so I didn't make it back the night that I wanted to. And then the next day, I spent the whole day in the airport trying to get home. And I did. Nice airport, though. It is. If you have to be stuck in an airport, I guess that's that's the Fort Myers Airport, I believe, right? Yeah. Not a bad airport. Yeah. Very manageable. And we got Chris, Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. I see you have your uh, your glasses, the uh, infamous uh, infrared. What are those? Uh, Blue blockers. Infrared. Yeah, right. infrared. Can't you see through things with those glasses? <laughs> I That's can see recession. I see wow. recession. Dead ahead. Yikes. Dead ahead. Let me let me let's let's just get this over. Let's pull the bandaid off. So, what's the probability of recession between now and the end of twenty three? Seven percent. Last we chatted, is it? What are what are we? Oh, writing? it's up. Yeah, unfortunately, what? I'm feel, I'm feeling even more confident in the that, unfortunately in I, our recession. So I feel. Oh, really? So what what is the uh, what's your probability? I I'm going back up to seventy, maybe seventy two percent. That's wow. Out of five. Okay. What changed between this week and last week from sixty seven? You were at seventy. Last week you went to sixty seven and now you're back up to seventy two. So what yeah. what happened? Yeah. A lot happened. Well, just look at the yield curve, Mark. It's uh it's inverted the whole way through. Okay. <laughs> I'm highly annoyed at this conversation. <laughs> All right. All right, let's let's talk about this yield curve. Uh, which yield curve are you looking at, by the way? All uh, of them, or all, take of your them. <laughs> all of them. Fed funds to ten year, three yeah, months, one that's month barely to ten year. Inverted, and that's just you know, bond market goes up and down or all around on a daily basis. But anyway, here, uh, let okay, me ten year, two year, let, right? Let me that's... ask you this. Okay, let me ask you this. Let's have it. Let's have a serious conversation about this. Uh, I'm uh, always serious. I, I know. I know you are. Uh, it's Marissa who's all, always cutting jokes and all off the rails. Uh, Somebody has to bring a little levity to the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly true. We have to have a little bit of levity. Uh, you notice in, you know, I, I, um, uh, every night my wife and I watch an hour of TV and TV is actually pretty good these days. You know, if you've got all these streaming services. And the one thing I've learned is if the TV series or show has no levity, you know, it's all dark dark all the time very hard to watch that you know you yeah. need right you need some levity in there and uh, thank god we have marissa on for the, the <laughs> levity. Uh, but but chris marissa's lev- a yield curve believer i believe right is she proselytizer muscle uh, mm. i wouldn't i wouldn't call myself a proselytizer but but yeah i mean it's not ever been wrong right it's sort of hard no, to it, that. it depends you know 
uh, over what period of time, false positives, so forth and so on. But let me let me ask you. Let's let's start that this conversation this way. And I should say we there are there is some economic data that came out in the in the week. Yes, mostly housing related. So we can come back to that and talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, let's talk about the yield curve. So for and if you're a, a listener, a regular listener, you've heard this conversation uh, about the yield curve a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, just to level set, Chris, so tell tell the listener why, you know, why the yield curve, what is the yield curve, why an inversion of the curve is a, a prescient, historically a prescient leading indicator of recession? So at, at, at its core, it's just the yield curve is just the difference between different rates or different treasury yields, I should say. So typically we'll look at the yield on a 10-year versus a two-year treasury or a three-month treasury, or a one-month, right? So you can pick different points along that uh, that curve and, and make comparisons. In a normal, well-functioning economy, that yield curve should be upward sloping, meaning that the, for the longer term that you are willing to lend the government money, you should expect a higher return or demand a higher uh, yield. All right, in, and that's in a, in a well-functioning economy. When uh, n- investors are nervous about the future, you can see inversions in the yield curve where the shorter term yields suddenly rise above the longer term, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Today, the two-year is about, what, 70 basis points uh, above yeah. the 10-year. Uh, I, yeah. I think the three-month is maybe 50 basis points. So it's, it's uh, by historical standards, deeply inverted uh, at this point, at least for those uh, portions. Measures. Yeah. Measure, correct. Um, I, I think we're you have to go back to 1982 to get this type of uh, inversion uh, that we're seeing here today. Why that matters? Well, so well, this is a bit just of just a caveat yeah. there. The the one curve that isn't that inverted, uh, just on the margin for the last few days, is the ten-year Treasury yield versus the federal funds rate, the effective federal funds rate, the so-called policy yield curve, because correct the Fed sets the the, the funds rate and. I look today, I think it, we're at negative four basis points or something. And it's been the last few days because the bond market has rallied in the last few days. Since the CPI report was so good last week, the bond market has rallied, uh, meaning uh, uh, interest rates have, long-term interest rates have declined. All rates have declined, but long rates have declined more. And so you have this now inversion uh, by, by about four basis points. So historically, the policy yield curve, it, you know, it... it it has led recessions, but it also has had false positives. So you've had inversions where the funds rate rises above the 10-year yield and a recession not ensued. So, right. uh, but anyway, just to round that out. So why, so why, yeah. why is it such a good indicator of recession down the road? So I think just to clarify there, I think the 10-2 and the 10-3 yield curves, particularly for this level of inversion, have always signaled, properly signaled recession. I don't think we've had any false positive for those yeah, parts. I think that's at least since I, I don't since, know how many recessions you've gone back, but l- at least in recent decades, let's say back yeah. to the back to the nineteen seventy recession, I think sixty nine recession. Yeah, was it sixty nine or seventy? 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So why uh, why is it uh, oppression? Well, one, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of just the bond markets. These are one way that investors or speculate or. Um, mm-hmm. Put their money where their mouth is is through these uh, yields. So if you are expecting a recession, you might pile into a longer dated asset because you just want to, you know, protect your capital um, versus equities where you might 
expect that lower profitability is going to erode stock prices. So you might be betting uh, through the through the bond market. In terms of the real economy, though, we uh, believe it's really through the banking system, right? Particularly hard to um, earn a spread when the yield curve is inverted. If you're a bank uh, lending lending out money long and uh, borrowing short, right? And under that inversion, it's it's difficult to earn a spread. So in that environment, you would expect that credit would dry up. Banks would pull back on the credit they offer to either businesses or households. And as a result, you have a slowdown in the economy, spending goes down, and we have a recession. So it's a signaling mechanism uh, from that point as well. Okay. So really two different explanations as to why right. the yield curve might be a good leading indicator of recession. The first is uh, it's uh, the collective wisdom of bond investors. And the collective wisdom is saying, uh, we're going to have a slower growing economy in the future, mid-recession. That means less inflation. That means uh, uh, a bond, a long-term bond is worth more. I'm going to buy that bond. And that sends down long-term interest rates. Of course, short-term rates are kind of pinned high because they're pegged off of what the Federal Reserve is doing and the, the, the funds rate. So if the funds rate, if the Fed has got its foot on its brakes and has the funds rate high, that's pushing up long uh, short-term interest rates and they can't come in as much and you get this this kind of inversion. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, 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 a forecast, a consensus forecast being done by bond investors. Correct. That's Correct. the first explanation. That's the... Okay. That's so the theory, right? I, I admittedly am out of the consensus. I, I admit that. I, I, you know, on my forecast, although I, you know, I do acknowledge the recession risks are awfully high and it's a close call, but I, I, I think my forecast is just as good as the, the average bond investor's forecast. And it's different. I have a different forecast. Second explanation so I'm kind of You're discounting that one. I don't care. Mark. Who cares? I mean, except but, it's, the, the, but so then why has it always been correct? Yeah, if you look at the not. ten two. Okay, so that that gets to the second explanation. Something more, something more fundamental, right? It has to be. There's got to be <clears> some <throat> reason why the yield curve is uh, contributing to the prospects for recession. Some causal relationship between the not, not you know the forecasts or forecasts. And that goes, I think you're right. I mean, that is the most logical kind of way to connect the dots fundamentally between the yield curve and the economy has to run through the financial system. And it's, uh, you know, credit, the way I would kind of phrase it is credit uh, is the mother's milk of economic activity. And too much credit, that's a problem. That's, That's the financial crisis. You extended out too many mortgage loans that, uh, poor underwriting, they blew up. Not enough credit is a problem. Uh, it's called the credit crunch. Uh, you know, businesses and households need credit to do what they do: buy cars, buy homes, expand businesses, that kind of thing. So when the yield curve inverts and the cost of uh, short-term money, the cost of funds for lenders rises relative to the rate that they can extend that credit out, that so-called net, net interest margin you were you, you mentioned. Uh, they can't make money, so they're going to be less likely to extend credit. And historically, that slows economic growth and ultimately leads to recession. Let me, though, proffer uh, that maybe, and I know everyone's going to cringe when I say this, but let me just no, proffer don't say it. it. 
I'm going to say it. I'm I'm going to say it. You know, not the you know four words. Say. Not the four words. Yeah. This time what is, he say? is different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it. Maybe uh, you know. I I, I don't, well, we're going to find out, but maybe. Uh, let me throw out a couple, three reasons why this might be different. This time might be different. And hear what you have to say. The the one uh, reason why this might time may be different. And this is, you've heard this many times, but let me throw it out there and see how you react. Is QE. The, the Federal Reserve, you know, has bought a lot of treasury bonds and other uh, mortgage backed securities. And they're, they, is, you know, they're now QTing, allowing that to come back down. But the, it's really about the amount of treasury and MBS mortgage backed securities that they own. And it's close to what is it? Close to $9 trillion. It's, it's, right. it's, quite substantive uh, and it, you know they increased that dramatically during the pandemic on top of increasingly increasing it dramatically during the financial crisis and of course they did this it, it, the fed did this uh because short-term rates got to the zero lower bound they couldn't lower short rates any further they didn't want to go negative they said okay let's get long-term rates down so let's go buy long-term bonds so they bought a lot of long-term bonds and brought down uh interest rates and so you know the uh, the ten year treasury yield is affected to some degree by that QE. Now debatable how much, but you know it could be seventy basis points. I'm just saying, you know, it might be, it might be seventy Wouldn't basis. Wouldn't that be points. convenient? Wouldn't that be convenient? I'm just saying. Okay, so I'll stop. That's you know one thought. How do you respond to that? This time is different in that. I mean, it is. Somewhat different, right? I mean, the Fed QE'd beginning in the financial crisis and obviously QE'd big time in the pandemic. That is kind of sort of different than other business cycles when the Fed did not QE, for sure, right? The, they never got to that point. Yeah, so when they were actively QEing, right, and then they were manipulating or certainly oh, affecting. Oh, that's a loaded word. Oh, well, I didn't, I, yeah. I took it right back, right? That's just straight up monetary <laughs> policy from, okay, you took it back. Okay. I, I took it yeah. back quickly. They okay. they certainly were affecting uh, the long yeah, end yeah, yeah. as well, well as the yeah, short Yeah, absolutely. Right? So that's not, you know, yeah. uh, nothing nefarious perhaps, but uh, um, when they were actively involved during the pandemic and during the great recession, you know, you would say, you, I think it is legitimate to say, oh, well, yield curve effects may be distorted here. We're not getting a true market signal, right? And you're right. Today, it's it is different. They are holding a lot of um, securities, but they're not actively uh, dumping those securities or buying more security, right? So I find it hard to believe that we're not getting at least some signal from investors out there. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying there's no signal, but it, this goes to the stock flow explanation of QE. I mean. I think the evidence, at least the academic research, the Fed research shows that it's about the stock, meaning how much they hold, the dollar amount they hold on the balance sheet, not the flow that matters in terms of the level of interest rates. So, you know, $9 trillion, it, yes, the $9 trillion is starting to come down because of QT, quantitative tightening, mm -hmm. allowing the, the, the treasuries on, that they own to and, and MBS to roll, roll off, off the balance sheet. Through maturity, or in the case of MBS, if there is any prepayment, I don't know. But if there was, they're, you know, they roll it that way. But it's really about the stock. So, I mean, it, that's debatable, okay. but possible. But how okay. much? Right? All right. Okay. Possible, so, but how much? Okay, we're so talking you, twenty you basis points, maybe, thirty. I mean, okay. again, we're very. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Could could be seventy basis points. I'm just saying. Uh, all right. 
here's another <laughs> here's another thought. Here's another thought. Uh, and this one you probably I don't I've not heard this. Uh, this is a Zandy thought. Uh, I think uh, the reason why uh, an inversion of the curve uh, has uh, such a big impact on credit and ultimately on the economy uh, is it comes historically generally after a period of very rapid credit growth. Uh, You know, the economy's booming, credit growth is very strong, underwriting is is weakening, uh, and uh, people are taking on a lot of debt, leverage is increasing, both on the household and corporate sector. And then the Fed says, oh my gosh, they step on the brakes, the short-term rates rise, and uh, you get that inversion of the curve and uh, credit flows stop. You know, business banks say, I can't make money. Financial institutions can't make money. Their net interest margin goes flat or, or inverts and they can't make money and they stop sending credit. And that's a problem after the period of very rapid credit growth because all these folks, businesses, households that took on the credit, they need to roll that over in in many cases. They, you know, the particularly businesses. They, <laughs> they you know, these are short term loans. You know, th- uh, they could be a year, three, five years, but they roll over. And when they roll over, they need credit. But here, all of a sudden, the, the curve is inverted. Banks can't make money. No net interest <clears throat> margin. No, no. They tighten up underwriting. And that business or that household can't get the credit that they need, and that results in a default and delinquency. And that's why you have an economic problem, why you have a recession, why it leads to recession, why it leads to stress, why businesses lay off workers in part because of the financial stress that they they face. That is very different than the environment leading up to this period. Their credit growth was not a, not booming. In fact, it was very modest. You know, kind of credit growth. Uh, and, uh, and uh, it's not like, you know, there is going to be businesses and households that need credit in the current environment when underwriting is tight, but not, not, it's not a wave of borrowers that need it. Therefore, we're not going to see the kind of defaults and delinquencies and credit problems that we normally see that ultimately cause businesses to pull back, households to pull back, lenders to pull back, and we go into recession. Okay. What do you think of that explanation? So uh, this time is different. This time is different in that regard, in that regard. Did you want to say something, Marissa? Well, so what period are you going back to? Because the curve inverted before, right before the pandemic too, right? Yeah. Well, that was, that was the, so are you including that whole, are you going back to before, before the pandemic? Like, I'm, credit I'm going, I'm from the financial crisis up? Yeah, or are you yeah. Just talking I'm going back to 1970. To every every recession since 1970, Chris is pointing out, he, and he's right, that when the two-year and the 10-year invert, uh, you have a recession within 12 to 18 months after that, including the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, no, I understand that. I'm saying your your argument about credit growth hasn't been that strong recently. What period are you talking about? Are you talking about the past couple of years? Are you yeah, going back the, to the, like, the, lead up, the financial the lead up crisis? This. Yeah. The yeah. Lead I, I, okay. you, you hear my logic. I'm saying yep. the problem yeah, yeah. The cur- curve is creating. So you had, you had all this credit growth before, you know, the curve inverted, you know, go back prior to that. And I'm saying this time is different in that regard compared to those previous cycles. Sure. Like yeah. certainly that Some, was true yeah. leading up to the financial crisis and in every other one. And, and, and if you go back and nineties. Yeah. 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 So, so 
I agree with that. Certainly okay. businesses and households are much more flush with cash today than they were previously. Actually, this is part of the reason why I actually up my odds in terms of recession risk, because my fear is that you have in the um, higher income households and businesses may be less sensitive to uh, interest rate increases in this environment because they already had, to your point, they have a lot of resources and therefore the, the Fed will have to overshoot even more to get the type of sensitivity. Uh, yeah, but, but that's okay, that's, 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 your, that's a smokescreen compared to- No, no, but that's the, the, argument. That's the no, mechanism. We're discussing the yield curve, right? And the yield curve reflects what the market thinks the Fed's going to do. They're not- that. That's in, right. That, so the collective wisdom has embodied exactly what you just said, right? So going back to the curve yep. and the in the predictive ability of the curve, but that's that's consistent, but, right? The, the I believe the markets are also anticipating that the Fed will have to be even more aggressive than what we originally thought because we're not getting the responses from households that we otherwise. Right? We're having retail sales this week, you know, continuing to remain quite strong, right? That's not the response that the Fed certainly wanted, right? They want things to, to well, slow down. No, no, no. I'm not sure. I mean, if I were them, I'd ex that's exactly what I would want. I'd want things to uh, slow. I mean, real, real retail slow. slow. It was well above consensus, right? Well, I don't care about consensus. I've got real oh, growth. Okay. Real growth. <laughs> consensus is what is what do I think well, is going to be, consensus. not what it should Fed, be. Yeah, yeah uh, it's what it, what it is, not Fed what expectations. It be. Let's put it. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's different than what it should, what you want it to be. If I were, if I were king for the day, I'd say that was a pretty darn good retail sales report. That suggests very modest real growth because year-over-year retail sales were eight percent. Inflation is eight percent. That says okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, these aren't apples to apples, but you know, roughly speaking. So I'd say that's exactly what I want. I basically want zero. I don't want consumers to pack it in. I don't want negative because that means recession. I don't want negative, but I yeah. want, I want moderating. Right. Well, that's definitely moderating. Yeah. But even core enough. retail sales were strong. I mean, even if you yeah. take out food and gas, right? But you, core re retail it's all, sales it's all inflation. Strong. It's all inflation, right? It's real real growth is barely positive on retail yeah. sales. And that's what you'd want. But it I'd was say. it was a sturdier report than I think people were expecting. But you're saying, I don't care what people were expecting. Uh, well, that, that's, that's is what, the, <laughs> no, no. Consensus is what I think it's, what it will be. Right. What I'm saying is what it should be if it's good, if it was consistent with my policy goals. It was above consensus. Therefore, it was above what people expected it will be. But that has nothing to do with what it should be relative to the appropriate policy. I was referring to Fed consensus or Fed expectations of what it should be. The Fed because that's what matters, right? Well, if it's if retail sales are coming hotter okay, than the Fed yeah. would like, I'm not sure it is. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure. Well, if I were on the Fed, I'd say that, I'm submitting that felt that pretty, I, I felt that felt pretty good to me. That's exactly <laughs> the report I'd like to see. Okay, let me throw out one other thing. Uh, one other uh, this time is different, and that is credit quality. Yeah, you know, the the thing is that credit quality uh, uh, usually erodes pretty substantively uh, when, uh, you know, the Fed steps on the brakes and the curve inverts and lenders stop extending credit. And then they, you know, credit problems start to develop, you know, in that period of time. Credit delinquencies, defaults, uh, foreclosures, losses begin to mount, and that adds to the problems that the banking system, financial system face, and therefore they tighten down even more, right? Because they have to react or they're responding to the erosion in credit conditions. 
credit conditions now are really good. I mean, really good. I mean, right now, delinquencies are going to rise, but they're rising from incredibly low levels. And they may just simply normalize, get back to something that we've typically experienced historically. And of course, the banks, and this is this time is different. The banks are extraordinarily well capitalized, much more capital than they've ever had, much greater liquidity than they ever had, much better risk management than they've ever had. You know, of course, the stress testing. And of course, they, you know, uh, we help them out. So they got to be that's got to be that's got to be good, right? <laughs> so that we're not going to have the same kind of credit issues or credit problems that we have. No defaults. So I keep going back to the, the the credit spreads in the corporate bond market, BAA Treasury spreads. Very, you don't see anything. You don't see any problems. So if that's the case, then maybe lenders don't pull back to the same degree that they have historically. But they are they don't pulling need back. To. They don't need to. They, they've got plenty of capital, plenty of liquidity. Credit quality is not a problem. You don't see the restrictions on credit flows. Therefore, the, you know, the, cur the curve of inversion means l something very different today than it m means historically. It's not, you're not going to see the same kind of tightening down of underwriting and credit conditions that you would normally see. What do you think? Well, we talked mm -hmm. about this last week, right? And CNI lending is, is tightening up uh, significantly, right? It's in no, recessionary no, no, that, no, territory no, in terms no. of the, the yeah, no, that, it is. No, wait, wait, <laughs> no, wait, no, it's what you're looking at is a diffusion index I'm, that says directionally correct. I'm tightening, but that has, go look at the actual volume of CNI lending. It's not slowed. It hasn't slowed. CNI lending, you commercial look where the puck is going, not where the puck is today. Well, I'm just they're, saying that that's just directionally, right? yeah, of course they're going to tighten, but it's how much are they going to tighten? I'm just saying... I hear I just gave you a logical, uh, a logical kind of framework for thinking about why this time is different. It is different. It is different. It's different from a. It's very different from a credit perspective, isn't it? Not. It is. Yeah. It is not the Great I, I, Recession. I can no, see. No, no, that. Uh, it's not a financial to any crisis. Recession, right. This is very different from a credit perspective. Mortgage credit, uh, CNI credit. You know, any take any kind of credit quality. It's it's. It's very different than it has been. Underwriting has been very, very good across. I, I mean, I'm paying with a broad brush, and there's yeah. things out there we need to worry about. Leverage lending, we've talked about. Personal loans are deteriorating fast. What is? Personal loans, subprime yeah, that, auto. See, I, that, I find that a red herring, too. I mean, come credit on. Card. Add up cards, <laughs> add up credit cards, retail card, bank cards, retail cards, and all unsecured personal lines. It's a trillion dollars outstanding. It's back to where it was pre-pandemic. It's actually tight. Com you know, there's not been any significant credit. It's actually very incredibly uh, low relative to where you would expect it to be in a more typical time because of the pandemic. I don't know. All, all I'm saying, you get, my, you get my drift. You get my drift. Oh, we get drift. It's yeah. every data point. This is, time uh... is different. It is different. <laughs> Unless you can tell me, and this is what I'm kind of uh, 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 ruminating about, is is there some other link between, or a way to connect the dots between the curve, the conversion of the curve and the real economy? I mean, I, I agree with you. It's it's about I, it's about credit flows, but is there something else that I'm missing that you know maybe? Would have a real economic effect that I'm that I'm just not not thinking about. Um, here's the other thing, and this goes to your forecast, Chris, because 
and I know I'm picking on you, Chris. I'm pricking on you endlessly, but that, that, this is no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, Marissa, your time is coming. I assure you, your time is coming. Sure it uh, is. Yeah. What, are, what are your odds, Marissa? By the way, <laughs> yeah. Just what so do I know where you, where, yeah, where do you stand on all this? <laughs> so I was like at sixty percent about. A two week weeks ago, ago, right? Two mm. weeks ago, right? Yeah. I missed the podcast last week. So I was at at 60% probability of recession in the next year. I think I'm now at two thirds. Oh, went up two? Yeah. Why? After our webinar. <laughs> but the, the CPI number was so good. I mean, why would you go up? I don't understand. A lot of other economic data has not been not been good. Yeah, the CPI was good. The PPI was good. What data are you talking about that wasn't good? Name it. I mean, pretty much everything that came out this week was not great. We'll what do you get, mean? We'll get to oh, that we'll later. About that. Yeah, I'm really curious about what that means. I don't want to give away my statistic. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, oh, okay. Housing clearly is going down, right? It's, well, that's a good thing, that's, right? That's appropriate. Okay. I think from a, from a monetary policy perspective, if you're raising interest rates, you want to slow growth. It's got to come, got to come out of housing, right? Yes, yes. So that's but, that's that's good. Bad news is good news. Uh, no doubt, no okay. doubt. But, yeah. but the uh, the likelihood that we can uh, then pivot and stop that uh, that wave precisely so that we don't cause a recession I, seems pretty unlikely to me. But that's the that's the crux of it, right? No, no, no. I, 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 that, that's a reasonable argument. I'm just going back. I just the technical discussion around the yield curve, and mm -hmm. you know, because it, it, you know, it's been, it's obviously uh, a good point that it's, it's a very prescient indicator. Um, I mean, I, I think we still need to see confirmation of a hard inversion for more than a couple of days on the policy yield curve, but you know, that may happen because the Fed's going to raise rates. Yeah. Fund rates going up. Is the 10-year yield going to go up with it? We'll have to see. I'm not sure. So it may invert. Uh, but it's just around that technical argument that the curve is inverted. Therefore, I put, as you said, I raise my odds because the curve inverted more this week. That That's kind of what I'm focused on. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So if the Fed, Mark if, if we do get that hard inversion for an extended period of time, do your odds change at I, all? No. Uh, well, the, will they change? I don't. I don't know. I mean, because I just that you know, I'm not sure. It depends on the economic yeah. data and why it inverted. But you know, just because it inverted, I'm, what I'm telling you is, I I don't think I'm not sure the curve is. It's this time is different. It very, you know, it's it's not the same. It, it may be implying something, unless there's some causal relationship that I'm missing. You know, there's something going on that I can't quite figure out between the. The curve in the real economy. But anyway, Mercy, you were going to say something? Why do you put more weight on the 10 year Fed funds, cur the policy rate curve, than like the 10 2? I don't. I don't. don't. I just okay. think it needs confirmation. I mean, you know, the, the, every time you've had a recession, the two year, 10 year inverts, but also the policy curve inverts. Now, the policy curve has, there's false positive, it's inverted and not recession. But every yeah. time, you've had a recession, the policy curve has inverted. So it's not, I'm putting more weight on it. It's just, okay. it's just we need that to be confirmation <laughs> that the, you know, two year tenure is, you know, going to be accurate. Here's the other question I had on that though, because this goes to your kind of forecast. Your thinking is that the recession would hit sometime in the, in a, in a, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, this is what I recall, uh, first half of next year, kind of sort of, by mid-year, we'd have a recession. 
Yeah, although I I might push that out. Oh, you would. Okay. Because I'm, the curve, if you take a literal interpretation of the curve inversion, it's it's saying more towards the second half of next year as opposed to the first half or mid mid year. But you're saying yeah. I'm splitting hairs there. Yeah, I am not gonna yeah. you know, give you the date and time. That's, okay. Uh, that's All for right. next uh, okay. next podcast. Okay. Yeah. All right, very good. All right. Well let's 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 quickly move forward because I want to get on the climate uh, change in the work we've we've done yeah. there, but the I guess the, looking at the economic statistics this week, it's mostly it's been on the light side, I think, uh, but mostly housing related. Is that is that right, Chris? Uh, well, yeah, retail sales and industrial production. Oh, that's true. We, yeah, right. And we got okay. a lot of the regional Fed manufacturing surveys. Well, that's right. This week too, we got yeah. a bunch of them. Okay, Philly well, Fed too, right? Philly Fed, yeah, Philly Fed, yeah. That, Philly that Fed, Kansas Fed. City, Philly Fed improved Empire a State. Bit, I think. Yeah. Which of, of all the statistics, uh, Marissa, which would you focus on? That would be. Are we going to play the statistics game? No. Uh, not now. Oh, should I wait? Well, I mean, the one I'm going to focus on is maybe the one I picked. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. All right. Let's wait. We'll wait. Okay. Okay. Um, anything else on the economy you want to bring up before we bring in uh, the rest of the team to talk about climate risk? Anything else you want to bring? Anything bugging you? By the way, I'm getting more confident that the economy is going to navigate through. I, I am. I'm just getting more confident. I don't know if I'm What are your odds now? 45%? Just 50%. 50%. You know, okay. but same as last week, but the arrow, you know, for the risk of which way it would change is now uh, lower, uh, not higher. Uh, the, the economic data feels to me definitively like it's moving in the right direction. Beginning with the employment report two weeks ago, last week's CPI report, and I'm telling you that retail sales numbers, that was good in my view. No real growth or very little real growth. That's exactly, that's the strike zone. That's what you want. Uh, but anyway, that's just me. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, let's bring in the rest of the team. Uh, and uh, we've got um, three colleagues that are going to join. Uh, and uh, for listeners, uh, you're familiar with these guys. Uh, first up is, uh, is Gaurav Ganguly. Gaurav, good to see you. Good to see you too, Mark, Marissa, Gaurav. Chris. Yeah, Gaurav. did you hear that conversation, Garab? Did did I change? I was fascinated by it. I was absolutely fascinated by it. I was You're... hanging on, hanging on to every word. He's being sarcastic, isn't he? In a, in a British kind of way. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure well, he wanted to jump right in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this time is different. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it always? <laughs> <laughs> I see. How uh, he snuck that in? Jeez, good. It's good to have you, Garab. Um And of course, Garab, uh, uh uh, the uh, tremendous he's a, he leads all our operations in Europe and the Middle East, but also is a, 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 an expert in climate risk. So it's good to have you aboard. And Chris Lafakis, Chris, good to see you. Good to see you as well. You know, uh, you gave out a four-word phrase, so I would give out a three-word phrase to your four-word <laughs> phrase, um, and Fire that away. would be uh, no famous last words oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh no one's on my side uh, uh of course what's the probability of recession in the next uh well through the end of 2023 uh yeah i think that the 60 65 percent range feels about right some about right through, to so. you. yeah okay oh, that's strategic that's that strategic. Is strategic yeah one percentage point under me yeah mm-hmm 
Well, you're saying right. 66. Are you saying we should change our baseline to a recession? Marissa? That's what it sounds like. Well, <laughs> perhaps. Okay, you can, yeah, you can think about that. Uh, Bernard, yeah. are you on my side? I'm, on, I'm definitely on your side, yeah. Oh, definitely. I'm even more, <laughs> I'm even more optimistic than, than you. I, I put oh. it at like 40. Yeah, I, I really think the data has been coming in better than expected. And I think the housing starts, I mean, we can talk about that with the statistics, but I think there's really going to be a glut of, you know, especially on the multifamily side, yeah. which is really going to help bring down rents. And rents is really the crucial ingredient, I think, to to our inflation problem. So I don't I know. I like be, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like this guy. This is Bernard Yaros. Bernard uh, is all things government, federal government. And also, you've been doing a lot of work with the data recently on mm -hmm. economic view. So you've been getting down and dirty with the data, yep. uh, the U.S. U.S. data. So it's good to have you aboard. And uh, the the group uh, has worked on a paper. We just released a paper. Uh, what's the title of the paper, Chris? The macroeconomic consequences of climate inaction. I believe beautiful yeah, title. Cost. Oh, and there you go. Yeah, there Chris it is. Chris is holding that up. So trees, but you know, that's okay. Cause I did too. <laughs> and, and you and I and Bernard, uh, co-authored that paper and I thought we'd begin, Oh, we just released it. We're pretty proud of it. So I thought I'd turn to you first, Chris, maybe you can give us a summary of it. And then I'm going to turn to Gaurav and he's going to critique it. Uh, so he's going to give us his views on, uh, you know, what we should have done or not did, or, you know, how good it was. Now, we'll get his views. Uh, and then, uh, uh, Bernard, I'm going to do the same thing with you, and then we'll go into a little bit more detail in, in some of the numbers. So you want to summarize, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did is we were trying to answer the question of what policymakers should do about the issue of climate change, particularly in the U.S. Um, it's the issue of climate change is global. Um, but the scope of our analysis pertained just to the U.S., and there were some assumptions around that um, that are documented in the literature. But we we ran some simulations. Um, we have this great tool, our global macroeconomic model, that we can use for policy analysis and to answer the question of in which scenario are we better off in. Um, we ran some simulations that considered different uh, combinations of action and inaction. Um, and so in all together, we, we ran four simulations. Um, the first one would be a current policy scenario, and that's one where there's no new legislation. And actually, at the time of uh, us starting on this research, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a um, carbon emission uh, com uh, mitigation component to it, was not law. Um, so the current policies does not include the Inflation Reduction Act. The second scenario does include the Inflation Reduction Act, so it's the current policy scenario plus the uh, uh, climate implications for the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. The third scenario that we considered was a carbon tax scenario in which a, uh, a modest carbon tax is levied. That carbon tax is equal to $40 per metric ton in 2020 dollars. Um, that tax escalates um, at a rate of the inflation rate plus 5% per annum. Um, and it's capped um, at the value of the carbon price in our last scenario. Our last scenario considers what would happen, what would be needed um, to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in the U.S. And there's a carbon price associated um, with that. We use the integrated assessment model framework 
um, which is basically looking at abatement curves of various um, types of um, uh, pollution and determining the lowest cost um, alternatives to, to energy um, and what carbon price would be necessary to push the, uh, the global economy, or in this case, the US economy, um, to those sources of renewable energy production. And um, using the kind of the carbon prices, um, that carbon price information, um, we constructed scenarios, we ran shocks through our model, we have carbon price in our model. So we were able to observe kind of the macroeconomic, um, fiscal, um, and climate implications of, of various combinations um, of action. I, at a very high level, that's what we did. I, if you'd like me to, Mark, I can describe the types of risks that we considered. We considered both acute and physical risk, um, both chronic and acute physical risk, um, both industrial transition uh, risk and macroeconomic transition risk, which would be what are the implications of kind of a carbon tax on the macro economy, um, that the transition in risk and, and, and physical risk kind of push pull. So in some of the scenarios, where there's maximum physical risk, there's less transition risk and vice versa. Um, and, and, and lastly, what I would say is that our conclusion is that in the very long term, it's more expensive to do nothing um, than to do something. Um, so in, in the short run, if you don't act, you can achieve some better economic outcomes. But if we're looking at 2100 and beyond, um, the, the cost of inaction outweighs actually uh, the cost of action. Yeah. Okay. So just uh, to summarize your summary, so uh, just to make it concrete, we ran these four different scenarios to under different policy assumptions to see what kind of impact that would have on the economy. And we're, we used our global model, but we were focused on the U.S. economy. And we uh, when we talk about the the economic consequences, uh, really broadly speaking, three: uh, the uh, as you said, acute physical risk. So that's the cost of hurricanes and 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 flooding and and of fire, that kind of thing. The second is chronic physical risk, and that would be things like uh, sea level rise, uh, heat stress, and it reflects the impacts that have has on uh, sectors of the economy, like tourism or uh, agriculture, that kind of thing, which is very obviously dependent on weather. And then the third uh, is, uh, economic uh, effect that we considered was the transition cost. So because of the change in policy, carbon tax or the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, it imposes some costs on the economy in that transition, and we account for those uh, you know, going forward. Uh, and the bottom line is... Uh, that uh, interestingly enough, under every scenario, and we took, we simulated the impact on the economy out through 2100, so a long period of time, obviously a lot of assumptions that go into this. But uh, what we find is in all scenarios, the economy, and we measure the economy by real GDP, is actually lower uh, than, you know, if there was no climate change. Okay, big deal. Uh, that's pretty obvious. Uh, but you're, the conclusion is the sooner you take action, uh, the uh, lower the cost uh, to the economy, the less of a hit to GDP uh, in the future. And then the third basic result was uh, of all the policy efforts, step, uh, uh, steps that we considered, carbon tax seemed to be particularly one that's phased in slowly over time 
is the most efficient way, the optimal way of of of, of doing this. It, it results in the least amount of of lost GDP economic damage out there in the forecast. Is that roughly right? Did I get that right? That's it. Okay, you got it. All right. Okay. Now uh, there are a lot of assumptions uh, and um, uh, that go go into this. Do you want to just quickly uh, enumerate uh, the? Two, three, four key assumptions that uh, you know. There's a lot, but the two, three, four key assumptions that uh, went into the analysis. Sure. I mean, I think that the main one is that you know we give credit um, to policymakers for mitigating physical risk um, in these action scenarios. So we calculate chronic physical risk. We calculate acute physical risk under all of the four assumptions. And based on the amount of emissions reduction of the policy action, um, we reduce the hit to macroeconomic activity from chronic uh, and acute physical risk. And so we do that the most in the net zero 2050 scenario. Um, we don't do that in the current policies um, scenario. Um, the biggest assumption is that we assume that all of the various countries decarbonize at the same rate as the United States. And that's clearly uh, a very big assumption and probably not how the world works in practice. Um, well, it's not we, how the world's gonna be in practice, but that's a working assumption here. Yeah, that's right. You know, So if we have um, a net zero 2050 scenario that we considered is, is um, predicated on, the emissions reduction is predicated on all of those countries um, reducing emissions, adopting net zero 2050, um, as well, and that's not going to happen. Um, but we we made that as a simplifying assumption um, because it's very hard if you if you don't make any assumptions like that. How much credit should you give U.S. policymakers for mitigating um, chronic physical risk? Um, and that's that's so like that's the first one. Um, and then you know the second one is that we assume that policymakers will provide as much um, aid for natural disasters as they have historically. So we looked at all of the um, extreme weather events in the United States dating back to Hurricane Hugo, and we said, um, okay, uh, all of the major ones, all right? What was the economic loss according to NOAA? What was the federal appropriation? What percentage of uh, the economic loss was the federal appropriation? When you do that, you get around 46%. There's also some state aid and, and, and so on and so forth. So 46%. And so when we were disaggregating acute physical risk, what we first had to do was determine how big is the hole, um, it, it, you know, and then how is it going to burden the various sectors of the economy? Um, and the, the, the sectors of the economy that would be affected by acute physical risk include um, the public sector through the provision of aid, um, consumers if they're not insured and they lose property or they lose rent rental um, avenues, um, businesses, if it's, it's the same version of the consumer argument just on the other side of the foot. Um, and then um, the insurance sector um, because uh, they, um, you know, they have to raise premiums, but they also have to make these large payments. Um, and, and that's one key piece of acute physical risk is that over time, I mean, if if Hurricane Harvey hits, you know, maybe insurance premiums will go up a little bit. But if Hurricane Harvey hits three years in a row, 
there's going to be a lot of insurers that are going to walk away from that market entirely. And the ones that don't will significantly raise the cost um, of insurance. And that gets cascaded down through the entire economy. So we assumed that the federal government um, spends a lot of money dealing with the fallout of natural catastrophes, particularly in the um, acute physical, the chronic, the, the current policy scenario that includes um, maximum physical risk. Um, we also calibrated to um, the um, NGFS estimates, the expected value. There's a range of, of losses and you, there's a chart in, in, in the piece that you can see the range of- um, NGFS being the network for greening the financial system that's doing a lot of work in this area. So we did uh, use some of the information and, and uh, uh, data that they, they, they have provided. That's correct. And they have a distribution of losses according to chronic physical risk because we really haven't seen this movie before. We we can tell you what's going to happen if there's a tax cut, but when when in terms of projecting out to 2100 and accounting for physical risk, it's we have models, but there there's a larger amount of uncertainty there. And so we took the expected value, so the midpoint of this distribution there um, for for our own um, analysis. Um, the estimates for loss, uh, according to chronic physical risk under the current policy scenario, are more severe if you take something like the 90th percentile or the 95th percentile losses. Um, and then the lastly, what I would say is that we estimated, we assumed that 60% approximately of the revenue collected by the federal government under the um, um, under the carbon taxes tax. uh, in the two tax scenarios, that the net zero 2050 and the carbon tax scenario are returned to consumers in the form of a dividend payment. And there's obviously different ways that lawmakers could um, go about, you know, kind of like mitigating the, the the damage done by their policy to certain income groups or certain regions in the United States that they probably would need to, to, to do um, in practice if they were implementing, you know, even a modest carbon tax. Uh, but that's the percentage that we assumed because we wanted it to be revenue neutral and we didn't want to crowd out private investment um, in in the very long term, that's actually what happens in the in the current policy scenario. Is that the outlays, the federal outlays, get so large and the loss in revenue is is so disruptive that um, debt uh, rises substantially um, and interest rates rise as as uh, a consequence um, of, of 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 private investment getting crowded out. Um, and so that's that's another feature of our that fiscal dynamic is a feature of our current policy scenario. Got it. One. Well, I'll just mention one other, and then I'm going to bring Garav into the conversation. Uh, the a border adjustment, right? I mean, because you want to mention that very quickly. Yeah, that's the a key CBAM, assumption. The, yeah, yeah. The, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is is something that is becoming mainstream, and I think that it's going to be very, very almost nearly impossible for any country to pass um, any meaningful carbon price. Uh, or carbon tax legislation that does not include a carbon border adjustment mechanism, um, because the the outcry from industry, you're you're essentially if you don't uh, include a CBAM, you're making your domestic industry um, uh, non competitive, or um, uh, you reduce their competitiveness relative to um, you know the international competitors. Um, so, you know, it, it, what that means is with the border adjustment is that if you are a producer of, of fossil fuels in the United States, you get taxed when um, you extract those fossil fuels. You um, have to pass along the tax if you're, you know, you, to your downstream um, or if you're exporting the tax. Uh, and, and, and if you do pass along the tax, that leads into inflation 
eventually um, for the macro economy. Um, but if you export the fossil fuels that you extract, you get a um, a, a rebate um, for for the tax. Um, and the same thing applies to you know further downstream. Got it. Yeah, and of course there's a, there's a lot of other assumptions, but uh, those are the kind of the the top top three five. Garab, uh, you you weren't specifically working on this research, but you do a lot of research in the climate risk uh, area. And uh, what, what's your sense of this uh, as a kind of a uh, neutral observer? I mean, anything here that struck you as uh, uh, interesting or stands out or even surprising? So let me start by saying, and okay, I'm, I'm, this is clearly a biased comment from me, but I think it's a great paper. It's really well laid now, out. Is that British it's, sarcasm? Did you hear British sarcasm? No, no, this, sarcasm is, this is the real thing. This is the real thing. This is the real thing. Okay, real thing. okay I'm, just, real I'm thing. trying yeah. to get you, my ears not quite used to the, okay, go ahead. No, 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 no. it's a totally the real thing. That's the um, real thing. This is a great paper. It's really well laid out. It's really easy to read. Um, there's so many assumptions that go into making climate scenarios that it's really easy, um, you know, to, 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 to not see the forest for the trees. Um, but I think some really good messages come out of this paper and I like reading it a lot. Um, so some things that I liked and some things that I think, you know, are avenues, not, not really, it's, it's there, there are lots of, it's really difficult to model climate change and model the economic consequences of climate change as Chris Lefakis knows very all too well. So it's not really about what's wrong with this paper as what's, you know, where, where do we need to go from here to make pieces of research like this more complete? Mm-hmm. I think is the best mm-hmm. way I can put this. So mm-hmm. a few observations from me on what's what's what I've taken away from this paper. Um, first of all, it's great to see some real world analysis and see some comparison of what's actually happening in countries like in take the US and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a big piece of legislation and which is a big step forward for the US. If you compare it to the EU, which has its climate action plan and the European Green Deal, that's been years in the making and it's been passed into legislation and the EU has been moving along for some time now on on, on this on this path. And this, it's great to see um, the US embarking on the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's great to see a piece of work that actually highlights the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. So I like that very much. I also like to see the comparison to a simple, conceptually elegant economic tool called carbon tax. Uh, that's not the way the world works. The world is not implementing a simple, conceptual, elegant tool like a carbon tax. The world is actually doing a whole bunch of different things. And the IRA shows shows you that actually the US is taking a very different path to a carbon tax. The EU, which does have a um, which does actually have a emissions um, scheme, it it doesn't tax carbon, but it has a cap and trade scheme. I mean, these two are theoretically at least interchangeable. Um, but even there, there are a whole bunch of other measures in place where the EU has phase out laws. Internal combustion engines are going to be phased out by 2035. Um, so there are lots of different schemes in place. It's really good to see a piece of work that actually uses a carbon tax. And it's 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 a great way to show how you can actually decarbonize an economy using a very simple conceptual lever. Uh, the other great thing about it, about using the carbon tax, is that there's a Big criticism that's usually levied against carbon taxes, which is that a carbon tax is regressive, mm. i.e., it hits the poor harder. Um, but this, you guys have shown how you can get around that problem by having a dividend payment. So this is not an insurmountable challenge mm-hmm. to using a carbon tax. Okay, um, using a carbon tax is not. It, it's 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 brought out in the paper again, but I'll, I'll make the point. Uh, communicating over a period of time. 
this is this is really quite important to have well telegraphed policy that's communicated over a fairly yeah. lengthy period of time in order to decarbonize an economy. Decarbonizing an economy can't really work effectively in a jerky way. Um, it's 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 not going to happen overnight. It's a long process. It needs policy that's well thought through, well telegraphed, and 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 goes out over a period of time. And that commitment stays most importantly. And and finally, I suppose the other point about the carbon tax is that it shows the the way in which decarbonization works. I mean, implicit behind this assumption that you start with a low carbon tax and then ramp it up over time is the idea that actually the cost of abatement varies depending on which sector of the economy you target. There are some sectors of the economy that are easier to decarbonize and hence require a lower carbon tax and other sectors of the economy that are incredibly hard to decarbonize and ultimately will require a much higher carbon tax if that is to if that is to happen. Take, take steel and cement, for example. Um, Cross-border adjustments, the CBAM, really important piece again, I think, uh, shows you that the world can't, you know, shows you some of the difficulties of implementing a carbon tax. I, I really don't see countries just coming together and implementing a global, globally implementing carbon taxes in the individual countries in the way that it all works and a border carbon adjustment is not required. I just don't see that happening. So any country that wants to uh, effectively decarbonize has to introduce some kind of border carbon adjustment, not just for the reasons that, I mean, it's not just about the future transition that Chris mentioned, that as if, if a country imposes a carbon tax and that uh, descent, that, that, that sort of creates a negative cost for domestic industry. It's also the fact that countries with current account deficits are currently importing carbon. China is the world's biggest emitter, but but actually it actually exports its carbon emissions to countries like the U.S. that import a lot from from China. So mm. putting in a carbon tax right now means that current imports from China would be subject to a carbon tax, and that would be the right thing to do in order to decarbonize consumption in the U.S. because emissions per capita on a consumption basis in the U.S. are far higher than emissions per capita on a production basis. So a carbon border adjustment is, is something quite important. Um, downsides of a carbon tax and what's not in this piece of research, that again, this is hard one. So it's, it's this is again, I repeat, it's not a criticism of the research. Carbon taxes can't can apply to every criticism sector of the economy. Okay. I'm, I'm really good at it, it just out can't, it just can't be because nobody's got an answer to this. Okay, okay, um, fair enough. Carbon, carbon taxes don't apply to every sector of the economy. And I'll mention mm. a few where yeah, it's really point. difficult to apply a carbon tax. It's, Things like agriculture, livestock, deforestation, waste management, poor land use. It's it's you, it's very difficult to actually measure emissions from these sectors and these areas of the economy. And so it's very hard to monitor and effectively put a carbon tax on them. And they usually require alternative policies. So if you wanna if you wanna have a, a scenario of effective decarbonization, carbon tax will always need to be supplemented. You'll also need to supplement a carbon tax with alternative policies. Um, because they are implementation frictions. The paper assumes that implementation challenges are overcome in real life. That's probably not going to be the case. There will be a lot of frictions. So finding the appropriate mix of policies that help um, implementation to be overcome will be important. And that's, again, I think, a future piece of research. There was one interesting thing that I found, and I don't know what you guys think about this, but I was looking at the Inflation Reduction Act and the mm -hmm. net zero carbon tax on chart 10. So I'm just advising everyone listening to this to go and read the paper and look at chart 10. You can Google chart it, 10, right? Zandi, you can Google yeah. it. it says Zandi, the it. macro con uh, costs of uh, climate inaction. Yep, yeah. you can get to it. Yep. And when you get to the paper and you get to chart 10, you'll see um, the difference in US real GDP. And I'm looking at it now, policy mm -hmm. scenario versus 
no climate change scenarios. And you've got all the different policy scenarios out there. And you show the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the carbon tax scenario, and the net zero carbon tax. And what I see from there is that in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's very little transition risk. And in the net zero carbon tax, there's much more transition risk. Um, but in the Inflation Reduction Act, there is correspondingly much more uh, physical risk. And in the net zero carbon tax, correspondingly much less physical risk. So what that tells me from my sort of naive reading of it is that the IRA scenario, uh, the IRA policy is actually minimizing the costs to the current economy, putting a lot of cost on the future. So it's intergenerationally quite inequitable. We're simply putting a lot of cost on future generations to bear because mm. physical risks will be felt much later in the century and will be borne much more by later generations. Whereas a net zero carbon tax, actually telegraphing policy now, being committed to it and getting out to net zero by 2050 feels on an intergenerational basis the right thing to do. We are not going to leave the burden of climate change to our sons and daughters and their children to bear with something we're going to take on now and deal with now. And that mm. I found to be quite an interesting that was for me what i took from that chart mm, this is this is not enough this is not this is not going this is simply pushing the problem continuing to push the problem out to future future generations so here those are a few thoughts from me very very good and i'm going to bring bernard in in just a second on the inflation reduction act because he, he that's what he spent a good amount of time on and, and I, bernard maybe you can react to what rob said in addition to everything else you want to talk about but i have this um kind of very sim simple way of thinking about climate risk. And it, it makes me feel better about things and uh, makes me sleep at night easier. And that is, it, the solution to climate risk is pretty simple. I mean, from an economic perspective, just tax the carbon, put a price on it. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of, you know, complications like the border adjustment and the dividend and so forth and so on. But, uh, you know, you put a price on something, good things happen. You know, people use less of it. Uh, that means less carbon. People figure out ways to new technologies and innovation to get around it, uh, to use less of it. So, and we've got a lot of experience with that. Like take, take, go back to the fossil fuel industry. You go back, I can remember 2008, uh, I think it was July 3rd, 2008. I'm making that up, but I'm within a day. Oil prices hit their all-time high. And everybody, everybody, Goldman Sachs on down was saying peak oil, we're running out of oil, $250. At that time, it was $130, a barrel. We're going to $250. That's where we're headed. And because prices were so high and, and the energy companies can make so much money, they invested and they came up with fracking. And frank, fracking changed the whole landscape you know, very significantly. And, you know, it just goes to the point that, you know, if you put a price on something, if people can make money on something, they figure it out. So, uh, yeah, I understand all the political issues with taxing carbon. It's very difficult to do politically. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, if we have to solve climate change, you just price it. Am I, is that just too simple a way of thinking of things, Gaurav? No, I, I completely agree with you. Okay. The best, best way best way to make an economy work effectively is to let prices do the, prices work their magic. Prices yeah. have information. Prices send a signal. They motivate people to do things. Yeah, 
Okay. All right. And and this is the big difference between the carbon tax scenarios and the IRA. The, in, in the other simple way of looking at it is the carbon tax is a stick. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you over the head if you use carbon, and therefore you're gonna lose use less carbon. The IRA, and of course you, you can understand the political. Uh, problems with that. When you start hitting people over the head, they get pretty upset and they say, I don't want to do that. And by the way, I'm going to vote for the other guy and I'm going to give them money so that you can't do that. And, you know, so forth and so on. So the IRA ingeniously, I think, I mean, although when you think about it for a second, maybe pretty straightforward is it's all all about carrots. Is, is that right? I mean, incent people to do things by giving them tax credits and government spending, that kind of thing. Is that is fair? Is that fair, Bernard? Uh, that is entirely correct. I mean, it's it's largely all about carrots. Um, you know, if I were to split the IRA into three components, you know, you've got tax credits, you've got about $270 billion in tax credits, which largely, you know, are trying to incentivize the production of uh, clean energy, uh, the investment in renewable energy projects, and then also trying to address climate change through other avenues like carbon sequestration, clean fuels, and also uh, clean energy manufacturing, very much in the spirit of uh, like, like the Ch uh, CHIPS Act. Um, and then there's also, you know, a lot of carrots extended to households and businesses for investing in uh, energy efficiency at, at home and, you know, in commercial structures um, and also uh, you, you know a lot of uh, clean vehicle uh, tax incentives as well um, so it's really the tax credits that really do the heavy lifting you also have a uh, you know direct spending by the government uh, but to a lesser extent that's closer to about 120 billion dollars over the next uh, decade um, and this is you know a large chunk of this is really reducing emissions from agriculture and forestry um, there's a lot of grants loans and rebates and you also it taps into the procurement might of the federal government to really promote, you know, uh, the adoption of clean energy, um, and also incentivizing a lot of uh, energy efficiency improvements in residential and industrial structures. It addresses uh, air pollution. There's a lot of investment also in climate resilience, which not which isn't, you know, uh, emissions reductions, but it really helps the economy, especially in coastal communities and regions that are prone to droughts. You know, to uh, weather, uh, you know, the, the 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 ravages of acute and uh, chronic physical risk uh, going forward. Um, when it comes to the sticks, it's a very minor share of all this. Uh, there's about $20 billion uh, over the next 10 years that you could consider to be uh, pay-fors or, or revenue raisers. So you've got, most notably, you've got the Superfund tax on uh, that they're going to be imposing on crude oil and imported petroleum. And uh, the revenue here is obviously going to be used to defray the cost of uh, cleaning up hazardous waste sites. There's also going to be in a, a, meth a methane emissions uh, reduction programs, uh, which would be a fee on excess methane uh, emissions from the oil and gas industry. So that's really targeting um, you know, methane leaks that really plague uh, the uh, natural gas output. Um, so it's you know, the vast majority of this is really carrots and only a very tiny, uh, 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 tiny portion of this uh, are, are sticks. Um, you, you know, I, I think there's uh, again, I don't think this is the, the most efficient way of, uh, of addressing climate change as as the carbon tax, as we've been discussing. Um, but there's still a lot to like in the way these um, uh, programs are, are set up. So I'll start first with the tax credits. I mean, because that's really the, the the main impetus of this uh, legislation. You know, the, the duration is very important. So these clean energy tax credits are really 
in place for you know for a decade or more you know in some cases to close decades to to two decades um, and that's very important for clean energy developers and investors who you know you know in recent times they've been they've been facing nonstop lapses and just last minute extensions of uh, clean energy tax incentives um, and then uh, you know there's just a lot more flexibility in these tax uh, you know in in these tax credits uh, than before so. Uh, in the federal tax code, you know, it's the two tax credits that are really do the heavy lifting in terms of incentivizing clean energy production is, you know, the investment tax credit, which is just an upfront credit against the, you know, the investment cost of a clean energy product. And then there's the production tax credit, which is a credit for every kilowatt hour of energy that's produced by renewables. Um, and one, you know, really good point here is that uh, the solar energy previously was only eligible for the investment tax credit, but now it's going to be eligible also for the production tax credit. And this matters because as the cost of solar declines, that's going to make the investment tax credit less valuable versus the the the, the production tax credit. Um, and then I think the last piece I did this has gotten a lot of um, also good feedback generally from what I've seen is just there's it makes it much easier to monetize these uh, uh, all these tax credits uh, because remember if you because these the production and the investment tax credits have generally been non-refundable. And if you want to benefit from a non-refundable uh, tax credit, you have to have a tax liability. And that's something that tax-exempt entities like public power agencies, local governments, uh, um, uh, rural electric cooperatives, nonprofits, they don't have. So uh, the IRA makes these you know, essentially refundable for for tax exempt entities, and it also allows uh, makes these uh, track, uh, tax credits uh, for others who aren't tax exempt um, transferable. So that means that developers can transfer their credits to a third party in exchange for cash. Um, and this is important because you know the current under the current system, there's a lot of tax equity financing where you've got an investor that provides capital. Um, in, in in exchange, or the, the, an investor that provides capital for a clean energy product uh, pr project in in exchange for the right to claim, you know, the tax credit, these green energy tax credits and depreciation deductions, um, and the IRA, I don't think it's going to uh, go away, do away with that, but it's going to provide other alternatives to tax equity financing, which uh, has high transaction costs that can be very prohibitive for especially for smaller scale developers um, and especially for developers of more cutting edge uh, clean energy technology. Um, so there's some of the things that I really like. Yeah. Um, there's others, but uh, the there's still, again, you know, there's a lot of risks and assumptions that we're making uh, as, as we discuss in the paper. Obviously, you know, we've been talking at nauseum over the past couple of years about labor supply constraints and global supply chain mm -hmm. disruptions. Those are obviously uh, concerns that could also constrain the the amount of emissions reductions uh, uh, that were that that we're assuming. But I, 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 I guess would the say domestic the, content rules too, right? Exactly. Another issue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. But I would say the biggest biggest risk uh, uh, in the in our IRA scenario, in which we were being a bit too over uh, over optimistic, would be um, that we don't get enough. Uh, we don't expand transmission lines across the United States as fast uh, uh, or faster than the historical average. So decarbonizing the U.S. economy, to, you know, to the extent that we're expecting or we're modeling under the IRA really involves, you know, uh, um, uh, extending the existing grid that we have to areas where you've got abundant sun, wind, and other renewables uh, uh, that can then be transported to, you know, where they need to go through transmission lines. But these transmission lines, you know, they're going to inevitably cut through state lines. 
um, mm-hmm. and just the process of securing property, you know, you know uh, land rights, uh, permitting, you know, just planning and siting these interstate electricity transmission lines is just a very difficult task. Uh, you have to contend with the whole array of state authorities, also grassroots opposition. Um, and one of the other outside sources that really helped us informed our analysis, you know, the Repeat Project, they're from uh, Princeton. They recently did another scenario where um, where they were looking at uh, they were looking at a scenario in which transmission uh, expansion does not occur uh, or occurs as slowly as it has historically. Um, and they're basically saying is that um, is that the emissions reductions could be anywhere as much as 80% or 25% lower than what they had previously, than what they would uh, forecast in a, in a scenario where there's no constraints at all in transmission. So, you know, this is a big risk. Um, I, fortunately, there's uh, the, the, infra- the bipartisan infrastructure law addressed this. They proposed some reforms. Um, and you know the IRA also does prov- provides some grants for to accelerate you know the siting and permitting projects of transmissions. But um, I think that's really the big risk when I when, you know when 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 I'm looking at our IRA scenario. <laughs> that's and, uh, and, very comprehensive. Uh, mm-hmm. Can I uh, just quick? I want to go to the game quickly uh, mm-hmm. before we do that. Do you want to respond to Garov's point about uh, intergener- intergenerational effects that this kind of pushes the pain uh, off into the future? I, I'm not sure I get that, but how do you react to that? Yeah, I I, I, I see the you know I, I see the point from the perspective of acute and physical risk. We it is uh, we are uh, benefiting the economy of today to you know to the detriment of I think future generations. Um, but I still how, how think so? can you it, explain that, guys? I, I can't quite get my mind around that. Why why is that the case? Because we have less, there's less transition risk today. There, there's less of a financial cost. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, oh, to, I see. To, oh, okay. To, to, okay. Know, um, uh, but, um, you know, I, I was really thinking about a lot of this really in, from the fiscal perspective, because um, there are significant, even under the uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there are still, you know, we still benefit future generations from a reduced federal debt burden. Um, and historically, you know, I, I look a lot at the federal, uh, you know, the federal government outlook. Um, every, you know, every six months, we get a report from the congressional budget offices that's warning about, you know, the long-term sustainability of the budget. Um, and historically, we're always worrying about aging population, um, about you know the rising cost of Medicare and and of medical care, and then just you know uh, issues with long-run product, uh, long-run potential growth. But I think we really should add to that list of worries for the. For the federal budget, you know, climate changes. I think you know that's another thing that I think our our paper really showed. Um, you really, you know, by reducing a lot of the the economic losses and the burden on the government, um, you really have significant uh, reductions in the debt to GDP ratio over the long term. Um, and that you know that that does benefit future generations, um, and it does help uh, mitigate the worst of uh, you know the worst fiscal effects. And for you know, the Congressional Budget Office, they do incorporate, from what I've seen, they do incorporate climate change, but they're really looking only out through 2050. And what we're really showing is that it's really in the back half of, of this century where the fiscal costs uh, in tandem with the with the environmental costs really uh, rise significantly. Yeah, very good. Uh, that I think that was a very comprehensive uh, review of that paper. So hopefully uh, listeners will uh, take a look and, uh, and uh, find it of some value. Okay, we're going to... Uh, 
uh, go to the game before we call it quits. And um, I, Marissa has been biting at the uh, bit here. Is it biting at the bit? Is that the right chomping? Chomping at the bit. I knew. I knew. Chomping at the bit. Well, biting sounds okay too. Actually, biting at the bit. Chomping at the bit with her or their statistics. So, um, and of course, the game is we. So each of us put forward a statistic, and I'm not sure we're going to eat. All of us have time to do that, but we we put a statistic forward. The rest of us try to figure it out with clues and questions, mm-hmm. deductive reasoning, and the best. A statistic is one that's not so easy that we all get it so fast, but one that's so hard we never get it. But uh, And bonus if it's relevant to the topic at hand. But uh, fire away, Marissa. Okay, it's not relevant to the topic at hand. I'll just oh, okay. put that out there right now. Minus 0.8% in October. And this was a statistic that came out this week. Correct. Is it in the retail sales report? No. Okay. Uh-huh. Is it? In the industrial production report? No. <laughs> is it one of the Fed uh, regional? No. Regional Fed report. Is it in the PPI report? No. That didn't come out this week. Did it? Or it did come it out? Did. It did. did. Yeah, it? I thought it did. No. Yeah, was it that came out Tuesday. That was uh, CPI oh, right, was last week. Yeah. It, yeah. it was favorable. Bernard knows. He forecasted it. Was it was favorable. Was it this <laughs> week, Bernard, right. or was it last week? The, it was. This week. Oh yeah, yeah. it was this it week. Was this week. That's Monday all or Tuesday. It's all. Yeah. I think it was, it was Tuesday. I think. Um, okay. Uh, well, this is getting tough. Is it housing is this something, related? Uh, is this something Bernard should know? Ah, because Bernard's tracking all the real time yeah. economic data. As an That's economist, right. Bernard should know. Sure. Oh, okay. It's not oh, one of the things he's tracking. Know. Uh, it, it, well, uh, can you give us a hint? So you asked me what one of my favorite, when we were talking about the probability of recession and indicators, and you asked me what one of my favorite ones to look at. This is one of my favorite ones to look at. It is surrounding the conversation about the yield curve and how predictive it is about recessions. This one is also quite predictive of recessions. Um, Minus 0.8. Um, the Empire State Manufacturing Index? No. Yeah, the, uh, God, Chris, I thought you guys would get this. Really? Like, right uh, off okay. the bat, yeah. Wow, minus 0. 0.8. Um, is it conference board leading indicators? Yes, it is. Ah, ah, very good. Uh, it came yeah, but, out this morning. It came out actually right before we started talking. I haven't had yeah, a chance to look. It came out at a little after 10. And and uh, this is the leading indicators. Of That's the- correct. Right. That's right. So this is the conference board's leading economic indicator index. It is pretty good at predicting recession over a six to nine month period. Um, the decline in October was the eighth consecutive decline over the month. And it was the largest decline that we've seen in one month, abstracting from the pandemic. So if I take out March, April, March and April, 2020, it was the largest decline we've seen since March of 2009, which was the last month of the great recession. It's pretty dour. It is well into recessionary signaling territory, like well in, below it. In yeah. the, I'm, I'm guessing that what, driving that stock market permits for housing for sure yeah housing is in there the s&p 500 is in there the yield curve is in there the michigan consumer confidence survey is in there and these things as we know have all been bad ui claims are great so but yeah that's in there right 
Are they? Yeah, that's true. Uh, they're not helping yeah. lift. They're not the, helping. Right? Yeah, they're not helping lift the Elliot. They're is still anything, incredibly low. Or, or can I ask it this way? I think there's, I'm speaking from memory, eight different indicators that are included? I think included? there's 10. 10, okay, yeah. 10. There's 10 of, different of, indicators. Of the 10, are there any that showed any kind of positive in the month? Um, that's a good question. I didn't, I didn't look at each individual indicator, okay. but if I look yeah. at, I mean, there's new because orders. Because that's the one I want to focus on. Just saying. The, the no, one out of the 10 that showed positive. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's, the one I, that's the most important right one. Side. That one. Oh, there were three that increased. Oh, okay. What were they, Chris? Uh, largest possible interest rate spread. Okay. Manufacturers new orders for non-defense capital goods. Okay. Those are two. Uh, yeah. Manufacturers new orders for consumer goods. Oh, okay. Those seem those seem like low on the list of, yeah. Um, in terms in terms of importance, right? Yeah, importance. Yeah, too bad. Okay. All right, that was good though. We should have gotten. Although it was this morning that that was the issue. I've been on Zoom yeah, all morning. I, I snuck in and yeah, grabbed snuck that in. Right nicely the, done. Nicely, yeah, nicely done. Nicely. Delphi. Very very tricky. All right, let's. Uh, who wants to go next? Uh, Garav, you want you want to go next? Do you have a statistic you want to throw out? There? Yeah, I can. I can. I can come up with a statistic. It's All not right. a conventional economic indicator, but it is linked to the paper we just discussed. Okay, far away. And, and the number. The number is fifty-two. It's not the meaning of life because that's forty-two. Okay. Yes, <laughs> that's where my mind went. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, no, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, as we all know, is forty-two. My number is fifty-two. 52. Number that came out this week. It didn't come out this week. It came oh. out in, I guess, yeah, the last month or so. And it's climate And it's a number related. that you wouldn't find very easily. I've got, to, I've got to confess. You've got to read a fairly dense report to get to this number. It's climate oh, related. It and it's climate related. Go ahead, Chris. Is it a number of countries? Uh, no. Not the number of countries. Uh, that did something. Uh, it's specifically related to a very important concept in that climate paper. Carbon the one that tax. you have to ex, ex, carbon, yes, carbon. So but some not the kind tax. of there's some kind of um, uh, physical. It's physical related, right? So phys, something right. in the physical right. environment. Uh, if you get above 52 degrees C. You got a real problem or something? No, uh, no, no. But you're right. You're, you're right. It's related to the physical environment, but it's not. Yeah. It's not temperature. Well, what, what was that? What's that? That called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The wet bulb. Uh, yeah, the wet, yeah, yeah. The, the one we, we talked about this about. Wet, yeah, wet, wet bulb. bulb. And wet what's bulb. that? What's that temperature? Do you know? Is that is oh, that temperature? Um, yeah, there, there's a. Gosh, I, I think uh, it's 52 degrees C. I'm just saying. No, wet bulb, is it wet bulb 35? No, it's not 52C. And that's not the probability of recession. At least not my probability of recession. <laughs> All right, shall I, shall I just... Shall yeah, I fire just, away. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's the median estimate of uh, gigatons of CO2 equivalent for all greenhouse gases emissions by 2030, right? So that's the number, 52 okay. gigatons of CO2 in that emissions in 2030. If... All signatories to the Paris Accord implement all their pledges. That's where we'll get to. Cumulative. And in annual. In 2030, oh, the annual, annual emissions will be 52 oh, wow. gigatons of CO2 okay. equivalent for all greenhouse gases if all signatories to the Paris Accord implement all their pledges. In 2019, that number was about 50, just 54 and a half. Wow. So if all, if all 
pledges are actually put into effect, then we will bend the emissions curve by 2030 as a world. Oh, goodness, this sound, that sounds like a, a lot of gigatons. That's a lot of gigatons. We even, will blow even through. Even if we do what we probably won't do, it's still a lot of gigatons. It's still a lot of gigatons. And it basically yeah. tells us that we'll still blow through 1.5 degrees, which is the ambition of the Paris Accord. That's 1.5 increase centigrade. In, above in, its pre-industrial yeah. era. And that's Correct. kind of the bogey here, but it feels like we're going to blow right through that. Yeah. We're going to blow through that. Yeah. Unfortunately. In fact, and I think in our baseline forecast for the U.S. Uh, or global, we're assuming two and a half degrees C, aren't we? Yeah, That's we're around the, that, by the way, is exactly what the UN comes up with its emissions gap report, which is, by the way, the, this very dense report from where I picked out this fantastic statistic. So the UN gap report for 2022, and it's a great report, which they compile every year, look at all these NDCs, and they lay out how much they think temperatures could go up by if various things get done. And the median estimate for global warming by 2100 is 2.5 degrees. Yeah, okay. Okay, so we're right in the... Uh... Uh, right down the strike zone here. Yeah. Okay. Let's do one more uh, because this is getting uh, pretty long in the tooth. And it, let's go to Bernard uh, in <laughs> honor of his, because uh, he's recently taken on more responsibility to economic view and is really focused on the real time statistics. And as you could tell from Which his- Which is why he is the only one so far who's not <laughs> in statistics. Yeah, I know. And you can tell from his, his uh, description of, of the Inflation Reduction Act, he is very detail-oriented. <laughs> really a good thing. But fire away, Bernard. Uh, so it's negative 4,000. Negative 4,000. Is it a statistic that came out this week? Yep. Related is to it climate? climate related? Risk? No, no, no. No. Is that the decline in initial UI claims? claims. Yep. Week ding, 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 ding. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. Now that is that is pretty impressive. Yeah. Rob, what yeah, would yeah. you say? No uh, sarcasm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm speechless, Mark. Overhanded softball Everyone, come on. Yeah, God, I come on. actually, I was thinking UI claims before you said it, so. Yeah. It's more reserved. It's more reserved, yeah. I think the word is humble. Uh, is humble. I am anything but humble. Uh, yeah. Given the opportunity, all the right, reason well, why I brought this up is because yeah. you know there's been a, we've been getting a lot of questions about all the the steady drumbeat in the news about tech layoffs. So you know there's just been nonstop from Meta, Amazon, all the turmoil in Twitter right now. So there's been you know I think some people have been incorrectly saying oh all of this all of these tech layoffs are an impending sign of doom or re recession. Um, but, you know, I, I would really push back and especially, you know, people are also saying, like, what's going to happen to jobless claims? Because by our count, you know, there's been about four, close to 40,000 job cuts in tech uh, just this month um, as of yesterday. Um, and obviously, if, if all of those show up in jobless claims, that's going to really push us jobless claims close to the break even, which would be breaking level, of, which would be close to, you know, zero or, or uh, lower uh, growth in jobs. But, you know, I, I think a lot of these, you know, if you look at the information sector right now, job openings are very high. They're off their peaks, but they're still very high. So I, I would assume a lot of these people are really going to find, you know, jobs pretty quickly. Also, you know, a lot of these folks are also going to be getting three months or, or so severance pay. So that's also going to be enough of a financial backstop to, you know, bridge them over, you know, until they find a new job. So I don't really see this as... Uh, you know, tech is not really in an area of the labor market that I would look for for signs about a, a you know a forthcoming recession. It'd be it's always you know I, I think temporary help is a much better 
indicator of uh, of of labor demand. Well, that that and I should say you are doing a lot of writing now on the daily indicators, mm-hmm. and you wrote a you wrote this up in your release yesterday. Yeah, and, yesterday, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and yeah, it's yeah. really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, kudos. I mean, really, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. enjoy reading it, which is <laughs> I don't enjoy reading much, but I re- really enjoy <laughs> reading that. Uh, so that was very very good. Uh, okay, I think <clears throat> we're going to call it quits. Is it, are you okay with that, Chris Lafakis Lef- yeah. uh, and Doritos? And it, did you notice Chris was drinking Wawa coffee? <laughs> I know, noticed that. A very large like, one as well. A very large one. And, you know, this is not, I think he wants to be, be uh, more associated with the everyday man, you know, because, <laughs> you know, giving He's glasses the glasses. And, yeah. Oh. And, the, and the lattes he drinks, a little sippy thing he has, you know, uh, is it hazelnut yeah. latte? I just like coffee. You know, okay. in all its forms. So, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, uh, thanks everyone for uh, spending an hour and a half with us. <laughs> that was, uh, I thought it was very informative. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. <laughs>